Uh, when you do the snare, so I guess not perfect, but when you're doing the snare go, going into um, the pre-chorus to the chorus, keep it going all the way into the, until you crash. Can you do that? Okay. Watch that. Like, uh, oh, praise his name for you. That sounds really okay. nice. Yeah. Um, We're not out of the vamp, correct? No vamp. Um, so there's air to there. And that's it. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Sounds great. When you have this. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> This one, Chenier. The, the, the order of this song, not just... Our um, study in the book of Acts, and today we're going to look at the second part of Acts 11. So we've not been going through verse by verse, but trying to hit some key themes uh, and so forth. And so uh, today we're going to read uh, verses 19 to 30. So if you want to follow along in your Bible uh, or on the screen, that would be great. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, every one according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we, <clears throat> we come to your word because it is because it is the truth about your story of redeeming love. And we come to the book of Acts, which is an extraordinary time in church history to see um, miraculous things, signs and wonders that you were doing, growing the church, beginning this new uh, era of redemptive history. Lord, please help us to understand what it meant for them, but what it means for us and how we can continue to move forward um, 
by the power of your spirit living in us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so, many of you will remember, some of you will not remember this because you weren't born yet, but uh, in the mid-80s to the late 90s, right, some of us, and really even today, uh, in some ways, the Christian church in America had experienced what was known as the worship wars. So in the 70s, if you go back another decade from there, the tip, a typical church service in America included prayer, preaching the word, you know, a sermon, singing of hymns, but only the hymns that were printed in the hymnal. There would be a responsive reading, and of course there would be communion once a month and the occasional baptism. Oh, and not to be forgotten, the offering plate was passed every week. Um, and the singing would be accompanied by a piano, or if the church was well off enough, maybe a, an organ. <clears throat> and the pastor would lead the congregation in singing by stepping away from the pulpit and standing in front of his chair and letting things play out. Clapping was frowned upon. Raising your hands was considered too emotional. And dancing, well, let's say dancing, no way. That's not going to happen. And, of course, this was mainly in the conservative evangelical churches back then in the 70s, not the wild and crazy charismatic ones. And it was considered a traditional worship service. But into the into the 80s and 90s, things started to change a little bit. Guitars, basses, drums were introduced in many churches. People were so moved and excited to worship God that they started clapping their hands. Some people even started to pull their hands out of their pockets and raise them above their shoulders. To add fuel to the fire, people who were still alive began to write hymns and spiritual songs and create new melodies for the great hymns of the faith. Well, this, of course, became known as contemporary worship. And it created a tremendous amount of division among churches, even splitting some. And you could see this playing out in the churchyard marquees as you drove past churches. Traditional service, 10 a.m. Contemporary service, 5 a.m. Like, you could tell which churches, you know, considered which one to be where, right? Uh, and their importance. Um, and then the last three decades have created uh, another controversy over who the worship service is actually for. Bill Hybels with Willow Creek Church and Rick Warren Saddleback Church both started to sort of market their church, their churches to people they called seekers. And this phrase, uh, thus the phrase seeker-sensitive services was coined. So why, why, why talk about uh, this, and, and what does it have to do with chapter 11 in Acts? Well, the, the young church in Acts was struggling with issues. And while not exactly the same ones as we struggle with now, uh, they were critical to the organizing and development of the church and the advancement of the gospel. And we have to understand the redemptive historical context to make sense of what was going on then in order for us to understand what we need to do now. And I think we should pay close attention to how the apostles formed the church, its corporate worship, 
and how they viewed missions and evangelism. So what I'm saying is, like, when you go to read your Bible, you, you need to put yourself in the story. It's, I, I think it's vitally important that you put yourself there and you understand what was going on at that particular time, right? Whether it's, whether it's Noah in the flood and trying to understand, you know, this 600-year-old man tr- trying to build an ark that he had no plans for, or whether it's in the book of Acts, right, where um, we, we're seeing this massive shift in worship and the, 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 the very birth of the new church, right? We, we need to put ourselves there. And so that's kind of what I want you to, to think about, um, not just this morning, but whenever you read, your, read and study your Bibles. And so what we're reading and uh, witnessing in this book of Acts is the birth of the Christian church. The church is literally forming from one chapter to the next as we go through this. And it, I think it's exciting. I think it's really exciting. And it, I think it gives us an appreciation for what they were going through. So what were they going through and how does it impact us? Well, I, I don't have time to hit all the, all the things that the early church was going through. But I'm going to hit a couple that I think sort of come off the pages here uh, in Acts chapter 11. So one of the first things that they were going through was persecution. Okay? So verse 19 says that now those were, who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch speaking the word to no one except Jews. So uh, anyone remember what happened to Stephen? Right? He was martyred. Uh, we, we, we looked at that back in November. He was killed for believing in Jesus and doing great wonders and signs among the people. That's what he was killed for. And after Stephen was stoned to death, persecution broke out against the church. Saul, uh, a Pharisee, starts ravaging the church, uh, chasing down Christians and putting them in prison. And this persecution led to people fleeing Jerusalem and even Israel uh, as well. They were afraid to die or be put in prison. I would too. If all that was going on, I'd probably run away and hide too. Although I don't think they hid as much as we think. Because the persecution led to people fleeing. But it also led to God doing something unbelievable. You see, God always has a plan. And the persecution led to people fleeing the country, which then in turn led to the advancement of the gospel because when they left the country or their city and went to other parts, they took the crucified and risen Savior with them. They took this message of good news, the gospel, with them. And people started believing in Christ and becoming followers of Christ. And I think the words of the Pharisee Gamaliel from Acts chapter 5 were starting to ring true. Because he said this, almost prophetically, if this plan, remember they had, they had arrested um, Peter and John and put them in prison, didn't know what to do with them. And they were worried about this Christian thing that was gaining momentum. And Gamaliel says, if this plan or undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. And so while persecution is usually painful, 
what we see in the scriptures is that it's always fruitful, at least for the kingdom of God. And I believe, unfortunately, that the, that the church in America has somewhat of a myopic view of persecution. We only see what is closest to us. And we don't see much persecution here in Midlotopia, do we? While we may face backlash from people who don't espouse our political views or even our Christian worldview, it's not enough to cause us to really do anything about it. If anything, we close our ranks and we run inside the walls of the church to escape the reality of what is actually going on in our community. And so for some reason, though, according to God's plan, the church grows at its greatest rate when persecution is at its highest and most dangerous. Go figure. So think about this. Iran has been one of the most hostile and violent countries towards Christians for centuries and still is. And in a, a Newsweek article from June 24, 2021, it was reported, this is what it says, I quote, Iranian authorities routinely arrest and jail Muslim converts to Christianity, often for extended periods. For example, the United Nations reported in 2013, on more, uh, they reported on more than 300 Christians who were arrested in the prior three years, mostly for vague security-related offenses. And an inquiry found that those arrested had been subjected to intensive and often abusive interrogation. The punishment can be severe. In 1990, for example, the Reverend Hussein Sudmond was executed for apostasy from Islam. In 2008, the government advanced legislation to impose the death penalty on anyone born to Muslim parents who converts to another faith. Indeed, as more Iranians convert... Kateri notes, their situation is getting worse. And yet the church in Iran is growing faster than anyone could ever have imagined. The same article also says this, Given the Iranian, Iranian house church movement's underground nature, estimates of its size are necessarily vague. But uh, Open Doors, a non-denominational mission supporting persecuted Christians in the world, found 370,000 Muslim converts to Christianity in 2013 and 720,000 in 2020. Amazing. Persecution is advancing the gospel at a rate that we could never have imagined. What does it take to get you to share the gospel with someone? Why should it take your brother or sister being murdered to following Jesus in, in order to get you to get off the couch and spread this good news to our neighbors and to our community? I, I would appeal to you not to wait to be persecuted. We don't have to. The need for your neighbor to know Jesus is urgent. People are lonely and they are literally dying. The pandemic has exposed all of us to our greatest need. And I think we should take advantage of the times that we're living in. I was with someone this week, a believer, and they're struggling 
with loneliness. And we talked a little, and they said, I live alone. I live alone. I live alone. And it's, even though this person has people that check on her and take care of her, and she's a believer and put her faith in Christ, it's difficult right now during this time. Can you imagine how difficult it is for someone who doesn't have Christ to put their hope in, to comfort them in their loneliness? We have a chance to reach out. So if there's one application from this section, it would be to go home and answer this question today. Maybe by yourself, maybe around uh, the lunch table while you're eating your grilled cheese sandwich. But ask this question, what will it take for God to motivate me to share the gospel with others? And I'm not going to tell you how to do that. Maybe through word or deed. Who knows? What's, what's it going to take for you? What motivates you personally? Not someone else. Not through guilt. But what, what, what is it that will motivate you to love and share the gospel with other people? Well, another issue the early church struggled with, and I think we can relate to, is this. Who is the gospel for? Right? So some people in the early church we just saw had already forgotten that Jesus told them to go to Jerusalem, to Judea, and to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, right? They had forgotten that already. They were still focused on just telling the Jews about Jesus. So they were somewhat nationalistic in their evangelism efforts. And again, we can't forget the historic timing of this passage, okay? So while we often beat up on, on these things and say, well, they should have known better. Well, you got to put yourself back there in, in these particular times, right? And, 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 and what was going on. So for centuries, God had seemingly focused on the nation of Israel, right? With the good news, with the gospel and his message. So when the early church started going beyond the nationalistic boundaries that they had lived in for so long, many people started to push back believing that only the Israelites were acceptable to God. But I think they need to understand at least two things. One, that God had always been reaching out to the nations. So if if you're going to go back and read your Old Testament, then go back and read it and understand it. He was just using the nation of Israel to do this. It wasn't that, 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 that God was only for the nation of Israel. He was going to use the nation of Israel to reach all of, of the nations, right? God told Abraham back in Genesis 12, In you, all the families of the earth, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It was always God's plan to reach every nation, tribe, and tongue. Secondly, the first century was the dawn of a new age, in the history of redemption. God had come in the flesh through Jesus, not just through prophets or pillars of fire uh, or clouds or a sacrificial system. Jesus had been born, the exact imprint of God's nature. And now that Jesus had lived, died, and risen from the dead, everything would be different. The gospel was exposed in all of its glory. Now the good news was was out there for everybody to see. And the Holy Spirit had been poured out on all people like never before. 
Now is the time for believers to literally go into all the nations and make disciples. But it was a huge shift for the Jews, and some of them were balking at it. And thankfully, some were not. And the apostles led the charge to advance God's kingdom to the ends of the earth. You know, I I believe in the last several years, our country is becoming somewhat, has become somewhat more nationalistic with the crisis at our borders. We've had to make difficult decisions about how to deal with the influx of immigrants into the United States. Now, I'm not trying to get political here. I don't want any emails or phone calls or texts about this. Okay? I'm fully aware that the border crisis is a complex issue and that due to security reasons, we have to do our due diligence in screening those who come into our country. I get it, okay? And who doesn't, right? I mean, I lock my doors at night in my house just like you do. But this sense of nationalism, I think, in some ways, has bled over into how we view people of other nationalities. It scarred us a little bit. How we view them and, and, and how we think they're of their need to hear and understand the gospel. I don't know about you, but after 9-11, I was very nervous around people of Middle Eastern descent. My prejudice grew. It didn't get better. It grew worse. You know? I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm just saying that that's just what happened, right, in our country. It's created prejudice in me that I'm sure affected my heart towards sharing the gospel with other people. Well, the earliest Christians had to check their hearts as well. Would they be able to get past their prejudices against other nations? Especially the Romans who were militarily occupying their country. Can you imagine? We don't even have that to deal with. Right? Like, if, if, there was a, if another country came and conquered our country, and we were under military occupation, would you really be excited about telling them about Jesus? You'd have to get over some stuff. And, and the New Testament church had to do that as well. But, if you think about it, the nations in this whole immigration thing, or what, what not, right, have come to us. They've come to us. And so I think we should take advantage of what is happening in the global stage and see that it affects us here in our own community and gives us an advantage uh, to reach the nations as they've come to us. Well, finally, we see that the Christians, another issue here, that the Christians of the first century church uh, were well-known, okay? It's one of the characteristics that, that we see, right? It says that they were first called Christians at Antioch. So, the, obviously, this movement was making waves, not just among uh, the government, but among the communities and the towns and the cities surrounding, and people were, were beginning to see There was something different about this group of people. So what were they well known for? Well, they were well known for their missionary efforts and spreading the name and fame of Jesus. This didn't sit well with the Romans since they believed that only the emperor should be worshipped. 
And it didn't sit well with the Jews who were skeptical about Jesus. I believe it was a welcome message, though, of hope for those who saw their need for a Savior. They were known for doing miraculous things and signs and wonders. Of course, it was the Holy Spirit that worked in them to accomplish these things. But some people were healed and and even brought back from the dead by the apostles. They were known for taking care of one another's needs and the needs of the community. Right here in the the last few verses of the passage we read, the Christians, it was the Christians who were putting together this massive relief effort in light of an oncoming famine. They were known to be good people, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. That's how Barnabas is characterized. And I think many other Christians in the New Testament. They were known for their study of the Scriptures and prayer, You see, a devout follower back then of Christ would be praying regularly, gathering together, stopping all that they did three times a day to come together and pray. They memorized more Scripture than anybody in this room, okay? Now, you might think you've memorized a lot of Scripture, but they probably memorized the entire Pentateuch in a lot of ways, right? They knew the Word. So one question is, what could we say that Christians are known for today? Well, I think to answer this question is a little tricky because not all Christians act a certain way, right? And the ones who act most unchrist-like seem to get the most press and exposure. But it seems that in general, at least our culture views Christians this way, unloving, instead of loving, critical instead of caring, and divisive instead of unifying. And again, I believe that most Christians are being misunderstood and mislabeled just because they have, a, have different beliefs than most of our culture. And that's a struggle for us. But even I notice a lack of compassion and unwillingness to understand those whom we disagree with which makes relationship building extremely difficult, right? So what should we be known for? I don't have much time, so we're not going to hit but a couple of these things. But big picture-wise, I think we should be known as loving people unconditionally. Let's do that. How about that? Let's just love people unconditionally, regardless of race, color, age, gender identity, whether they are moral or immoral, rich or poor, Republican or Democrat, Muslim or Buddhist, healthy or sick, we need to be known for loving everyone. Read the Gospels. That's what Jesus did. Micah 6.8 sums it up. We're to do justice, love kindness, and to walk humbly with God. People should be able to see that we care about justice, that we are kind people who show mercy, and that we walk with God humbly, not arrogantly. People who follow Jesus Christ are willing to sacrifice for him. That's the last thing I think that we should be known for. That we follow Jesus and we're willing to sacrifice for him. In whatever way that means. Whether it means giving things away or giving, uh, sacrificing our time or our resources or whatever. We don't seem to have problems with people labeling us in other ways 
he loves college football, she loves kayaking, that family's really into going to Disney, or whatever, right? We shouldn't be ashamed to, to, for people to know us for our faith, that we're really into the Bible, you know? That guy's really in the Bible. My coworker, he's always asking me, how can he pray for me? That's okay. That's a good thing, right? Well, the infant church in the first century had their struggles, right? And um, it was all part of God's plan of redemptive history. And today, our church, in general, in America, in, 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 the, in the, the world church, Spring Run Church, we have our own struggles. But they're also all part of God's plan. You, as a Christian, are part of God's plan, what He's doing in and through you. You get to play a vital role in what God is doing. And God has never stopped advancing his kingdom, and he will never stop advancing his kingdom until all things are consummated. Um, just as I wrap things up, uh, many of you have asked about Molly. So we put Molly. Okay, so Molly is alive. She's safely in Ireland. She's going to be there for two years. Uh, she's doing great, um, loving what the Lord is doing over there so far. Thank you again for uh, all your support. Uh, but Molly got to go this past week to the, to the physical place that inspired C.S. Lewis to uh, write the Chronicles of Narnia, which I thought was pretty cool. So she, that's the wood, wooded area, and there's a little carved uh, statue of Aslan. And so um, you can take that down, but uh, Molly, Molly's good. But in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis writes about four children who step through a wardrobe in their uncle's mansion and magically fall into a wonderful land called Narnia. Now, unfortunately, the particular time that they land in Narnia, it is always winter and never Christmas due to the oppressive rule of a wicked white witch. The talking animals and creatures of Narnia are in constant fear of her tyrannical reign. However, the hope of Narnia returning to its previously glory under the reign of Narnia's true king, Aslan, gives them hope. And even in the midst of hardships and turmoils, they are able to love and care for one another. They're even able to bond together in resistance against the army of the White Witch. And what they know and believe in their hearts encourages them to live with hope is simply this, that Aslan is on the move. Together, we as a church know and believe in our hearts Christ is on the move. And this allows us to prove a watch to a watching world that Jesus is Lord and King over all creation. Let's pray. Jesus, you rule. You are the sovereign king. Not us, not our president, not the president or rulers of any nation in this world. You rule. You have a plan of redeeming your people to yourself. We've seen it happen through the scriptures. We've seen it happen in our own lives, as you have redeemed us, we've seen it happen to friends and family and people in our community. 
We've seen it happen as you've moved and motivated people to go out and start ministries and to volunteer and to, uh, to spend their lives loving other people unconditionally. To advance your redemptive plan, Lord, and this will not stop. Give us hearts, Lord. Motivate us to be on mission with what you're doing, Lord. From, from our homes and the tables we eat at, to our neighborhoods, to our workplaces, and to the ends of the earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.